Welcome to Aches and Gains, a weekly talk show covering all aspects of pain and pain relief. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, pain specialist at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Pain has reached epidemic proportions, and chronic pain affects a staggering 25% or more of the population. Its human impact is real and is felt by infants, children, all the way to older adulthood. But there's hope and there's treatment. This show offers compelling stories of those who found relief and offers insight into treatments that can ease pain and human suffering. You may be shocked to find out that up to 20% of women have had sexual pain during their lives. That's higher than the percentage of adults with asthma, cancer, or heart disease. When we talk about sexual pain, we're focused on the region of the body called the pelvis. The pelvis extends from the belly button to the pubis, and pain can arise from muscles in the pelvic floor, bones, ligaments, as well as organs like the bladder, intestines, uterus, prostate, nerves, and sexual organs. Today, we'll discuss a subject that's considered untouchable and taboo by patients and doctors alike. We'll break that silence by learning about the causes and treatments for sexual pain in women. Our first guest, Jessica, shares for the first time in public how she's endured five years of misdiagnosed vulvar pain, resulting in a lack of sexual intimacy. We're then joined by Dr. Deborah Cody, author of Healing Painful Sex, and one of the few gynecologists specializing in the treatment of sexual pain. Aches and Gains is sponsored by King Pharmaceuticals, Endo Pharmaceuticals, Neurogesics, and Boston Scientific. Aches and Gains is also available live online. Follow us on Twitter at DRPaulCristo and like us on Facebook, Aches and Gains. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. That's paulchristomd.com. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Christo, especially for upcoming shows, please email him at achesandgains at gmail.com. That's achesandgains at gmail.com. Jessica is a woman in her late 20s who suffered from unrelenting sexual pain for five years. Confusion, isolation, and depression set in until a thorough exam revealed quite remarkably that bone spurs in her hip joint were causing vulvar pain. Hi, Jessica. Welcome to Aches and Gains. Hi. Many view chronic sexual pain as one of the most commonly misdiagnosed and mistreated conditions in all of medicine. In fact, it's regarded as taboo. What is your impression? I completely agree. Um, When I first started having these problems, and I finally, somebody first told me what the word vulvodynia was. Um, I told my, like, everyday, like, doctor that I just went for, like, colds. And I said, you know, I'm having these problems. And he said that vulvodynia wasn't a real thing and that it's more just in my head and I have, like, maybe some psychological issues and I should go to a therapist. It's awful to hear that you were dismissed that way. Jessica, what did you begin to experience when the pain began? It was my first year out of college, so I think I was 22 years old. just kind of felt like I maybe had a yeast infection or bacterial infection, and I just had burning down there constantly, and so then I got tested for that, and then I thought, well, then I probably have some form of STD, and I got all panicked, and just nothing was coming up, and then I even got tested for, um, I got like an ultrasound um, to see if I have a tumor down there, just because it was just a lot of pain in everyday life, not even in sexual situations. And um, I just was really baffled at what was wrong with me because there was never any answer, any pill to take that would cure it. 
that must have been frustrating and confusing because you simply didn't have a diagnosis. Where exactly in your body did you feel the pain? I had pain, vulvodynia is like pain in your vulvar, but for me it was an overall pain down there. It was the clitoris, um, like the lip area and inside, um, just basically all down in my vagina hurt, like every part of it. It was like a burning sensation. And to even go to bathroom in the very beginning also caused pain. It was, you know, it was uncomfortable to go to bathroom. So your pain extended beyond the genital area to the urinary tract, and that must have been very scary. Yes, it was very scary. It was my first year out of college. It was, um, you know, kind of getting put, I moved to Manhattan, so I was going into the real world, and I just didn't know what was happening to me, and it wasn't something that, you know, you can commonly talk about with everybody because I really thought it was an STD. And even if you tell people you don't have an STD, they figure you have an STD that you just haven't figured out yet. It sounds like it could be very isolating. And and I'm wondering, were you silent about it or embarrassed? Uh, Well, I'm a pretty vocal person. I'm pretty blessed to have really close girlfriends and family members. So I was open about it with my mom, even though it was embarrassing because me and my mom don't really discuss the topic of... um, sex or anything like that. And at the time, I actually wasn't having sex with anyone. But um, I, you know, I was able to say to my mom that, I, you know, I'm having burning down there and all this stuff. And it's not an STD. But so I was able to talk to my mom and my best girlfriends at the time that I lived with. I just said how much pain I was having. And when before I got tested, I just said I really had a fear that I, I had some STD that is just coming out or something, because I know you can have an STD and it can lay dormant in your system for a long time. Yes. Uh, I mean, were your mom and friends uh, receptive? Well, like I said, I'm pretty lucky. I'm very close and I'm very, I'm not someone who's shy with my emotions. So, you know, my girlfriends were supportive. Like, of course, you know, it's not STD. And my mom was just kind of concerned and just wanted me to get checked out. But where the hard part came was once I got everything under the sun checked out, the not knowing what it was and just having to be supportive because I would turn to them and just cry all the time just saying, what is wrong with me? There's no answer in sight. And I just felt very broken, like something was wrong with me because why can everyone go out and have boyfriends or, you know, just even have a good time? And, you know, I can't even do the basic thing that I see on TV and movies and, you know, just every song you hear about and just not be able to do that, let alone go to bathroom without being in pain. So even basic life functions like urinating were uncomfortable, not to mention the fact that you were really robbed of any type of romantic relationships. When we come back, I'd like to ask you how the vulvodynia affected your level of intimacy and libido. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. Follow us on Twitter at DRPaulChristo, and like us on Facebook, Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is sponsored by King Pharmaceuticals, a leading pharmaceutical company focused in specialty-driven markets, including pain management, and dedicated to improving and protecting quality of life for people around the world. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Christo, especially for upcoming shows, please email him at achesandgains at gmail.com. That's achesandgains at gmail.com. Welcome back. Jessica, how did the vulvodynia affect your level of intimacy and your libido? Yeah, I became really depressed, so my libido went down. And, like, sometimes I would, like, it just, it wasn't even an option for me because the thought of it was painful. And you mean intercourse? Yes. 
I mean, like going to bathroom hurts. So the thought of that wasn't even an option. So, you know, it's depressing. I was single and I would meet boys, but it was like no one would want to date me because who would want to start a relationship with someone who couldn't even be sexually active. Were you able to have relationships at that time? I really did not date a lot and I was not comfortable talking about it with men. That's one thing. My girlfriend, yes. My mother, yes. But not men. I was not that confident myself. Now I'm 28 years old. At the time, I was 22. I mean, I was a lot less confident in my dating life. And I was embarrassed by it because, like I said, how many guys are you going to say, oh, I have a pain down there, but I promise it's not an STD. I mean, no one would believe you. Um, and I didn't get to that level of intimacy with any of them that I was that they would believe me. Did you ever talk to a boyfriend about this problem? Yes. There was one guy I, I dated... And it was a long-distance relationship, so it actually worked in my favor because <laughs> I didn't have to be that active. But the one time things started happening and it, it just hurt, I just stopped him and I didn't really say anything. It wasn't until the next visit I was going to tell him and I was going to work up the courage and everything. And unfortunately, I, I hope to believe it wasn't because of that, but we ended up breaking up. And I saw him after we already broken up where we remained friends. And I told him, and he said, oh, I really wish you had told me. And I said, well, I, I didn't know what was wrong with me at the time, and I really was too embarrassed to tell you. And he said, I really wish, he's like, that's not the reason we ended things, but he's like, I really wish you could have told me. I was very confused why you just stopped things. I think I was so damaged, you know, like I just feel like they always say, like, everyone wants to be around someone positive and everybody wants, you know, you give off good energy. It's what people want to be around. And I was just... Just demoralized, really. Uh, did you see many specialists? I was just from doctor after doctor. And my first vulvodynia specialist, so once it was diagnosed, I was to a specialist, which is laughable because he, all he said to me literally with a smile on his face was, you can take this pill and it can take up to two years to work. There's nothing else I can do for you. And it just might take that long literally this is all we can give you it's not much known about this and this pill is going to make you feel like a zombie you know and it, and it could take two years so I'm like um it hurts for go to bathroom I'm going to wait two years and like so I was on the medicine for two straight years and it did absolutely nothing and I couldn't get up to work out before work like I used to I just didn't feel myself it must have been very discouraging yeah I, I went my mom was waiting for me in the waiting room and I was just sobbing I remember I had my five-year high school reunion that weekend, and, I mean, I was just sobbing because I was like, there's no end in sight. There's no cure. No one knows what this is. Like, why is this happening to me? Why? What is What is wrong with me? It was depressing. Jessica, tell us about the surprising link between your hip and the vulvodynia. In college, my senior year, my last year, so the year before I started getting the vulvar pain, I had hip pain, and my hip really hurt. And I went to hip doctors, and everyone just thought my pelvis was out of alignment, so I went to physical therapy, but it never got better. So it seemed the more I worked out, the worse my vulvar pain got. So it kind of was like I was getting punished, but I never put the two together. So my senior year, then the next year, I started having all the vagina pain. I felt like I couldn't be a normal woman. I felt like I was never, you know, I always want children and to get married, and I felt like even that was going to affect it. And then I met my specialist, Dr. Cody, and she was actually the first one to put two and two together that my hip pain was probably causing my vulvodynia pain. 
and you highlight how sexual pain can touch every aspect of a person's life. Next time on the continuation of this two-part series on sexual pain, we'll get more details from Jessica and discover how correcting her hip problem allowed her to live virtually pain-free and able to regain an intimate, fulfilling relationship. Up next is Dr. Deborah Cody, one of the few gynecologists specializing in the treatment of sexual pain. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is sponsored by Endo Pharmaceuticals, a U.S.-based specialty healthcare solutions company that delivers innovative diagnostics, drugs, devices, and clinical data to meet the needs of patients in areas such as pain, urology, oncology, and endocrinology. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. That's paulchristomd.com. Welcome back. Dr. Deborah Cody is a private practice board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist in New York City. She cares for women with chronic sexual, vulvar, and pelvic pain. Many patients come to her after years of humiliation and misdiagnosis that have disrupted their sex lives, often making sexual activity impossible. She's a clinical assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at NYU Langone Medical Center and is an advocate for improvements in women's health care and reproductive freedom. Her book, Healing Painful Sex, is a woman's guide to confronting, diagnosing, and treating sexual pain. Dr. Cody, welcome to Aches and Gains. Thank you so much for having me. In your book, Healing Painful Sex, you note that about one in every five to six women, or almost 20% of all women, experience sexual pain at some point in their lives. Why is that number so high? It is very high, and it's very unknown to women who actually suffer from painful sex because they think that they're really strange or odd or nobody else but them has this. And many women at some point in their life will have sexual pain. It could be because they're in menopause and they have pain from hormonal changes, or it could be because they're very young and in their early sexual experience, they have painful bladder or vestibular dynia. So there's a wide range of reasons why this number is so high. I'm glad that we now have the opportunity to break this silence and talk about a subject that's been taboo for many, many years. Exactly, because it is very uh, hard to talk about, you know, when you're a woman suffering with sexual pain. And, you know, probably it's been this high over the eons of, of women's existence. And because of cultural issues, and it's such an intimate condition that very rarely would women even talk about it to anybody, even their partner, we've, we've found out. And that's one of the reasons why I felt it so necessary to write the book, because women go their whole lifetime suffering and never get help just because they think that this is so rare and there must be nothing to do about it. Well, it's clear that both you and your book, Healing Painful Sex, are making us understand that there is something to do about it. I'm curious, you note also in your book that most doctors are not experienced or are uncomfortable talking about sexual pain with patients. Is this changing? Um, it is changing, but not as much as you would think it would be. And I think that's for a lot of reasons. I mean, it is an uncomfortable thing for many people, maybe the way they grew up, hoping that, you know, younger generations perhaps will have more comfort with this. But I think a lot of it is just the structure of medicine and what doctors either have been educated to know, which is very little about pain in the pelvis in general and sexual pain, 
and also the structure of office hours and you know the way uh, practices run it, it's a very complicated issue and and unfortunately gynecology should be the place where women feel comfortable going to their OBGYN to bring up anything like this but you know many patients come to me they just know that their general OBGYN just doesn't have either the time or the interest built into their day to deal with any kind of chronic pain situation. I mean, as you know, just chronic pain is is very complex and takes a lot of, um, you know, talking, history taking, evaluation, testing, and most OBGYNs are just not set up to do that. Sadly, Deb, I've had several female patients with pelvic pain tell me that they feel ignored by their gynecologist. This is why I honestly um, made this a focus of my practice many years ago is because a lot of women would come to me and, and say that and, you know, hopeless and devastated because it's invisible. You know, so many gynecologists would say, well, I don't see yeast. I don't see anything. There's nothing visible you're fine, you know, and they're, no, I'm not fine. But now that I can tell them, well, who sees nerves visibly? You know, if it's nerve pain, it's not going to be visible. Yes, it's that the pain is invisible that makes it so isolating and tormenting. We need to take a break, but when we come back, I'd like you to share a story from the book that not even the publishers believed. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is sponsored by Neurogesics a biopharmaceutical company focused on developing and commercializing novel pain management therapies. Aches and Gains is also available live online. Follow us on Twitter at DRPaulCristo and like us on Facebook, Aches and Gains. Welcome back. Dr. Cody, will you share with us one of the more outrageous things that have been said to your patients by their gynecologist? We made a list in the book of some of the things that my patients have told me when they first come in that other gynecologists have told them. And our publisher said to us, you can't print that. That's impossible. Nobody would say that. And we're saying, these are true. (laughs) This is what patients have been told. You know, it's so so sad. Well, the one that the publisher really reacted to and said, no, this can't be true, is that one gynecologist told an 18-year-old patient, end quote, (laughs) and, and she burst into tears when she told me this. He said to her, you better tell your boyfriend to get a new girlfriend. Wow. You know, I mean, yeah. that, that, that takes it all. But a lot of it has to do with, well, you know, you must, you must be, you know, you must have been brought up in a, you know, very conservative family or you've got to just learn to relax. Those are the common ones that we I see. hear all the time. But that last one was like... Pretty horrible. Yeah. How does sexual pain affect women in a way that's different from pain in any other part of the body? They, you know, have come to think of themselves as damaged goods. We hear that a lot. Or, you know, just, well, maybe it is me. Maybe it is uh, psychological, you know, because if you can't understand what's going on in a physical sense, it's very easy to start thinking that, you know, you've brought this on upon yourself or you feel terrible for your husband or your partner, you know, and guilt is a big thing. So that's, you know, when we got together to write the book, that was such an important aspect of it is not to just address the medical side. And this type of pain really does a number on your emotions and and your brain. I wonder whether many women feel desexualized from vulvodynia or, or their pelvic pain. Some might just be 
almost subconsciously by choice, well, if it's going to hurt me, then, you know, I can't, I'm not going to, you know, participate in that part of life, which is a big loss for them. And secondly, um, there's things that happen to them that are almost like a um, post-traumatic stress where they've been looked at by so many doctors. And one patient that we interviewed for the book said that she just had to sort of separate her sexual self from her physical self because being on display, I mean, some of them have residents come in and look and see what's going on. So it it might be like a defense mechanism. But the problem with that is once they're better, we really have to work with them from the emotional and psychological side, sometimes with uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, to really be able to move on from a horrible experience. Because a lot of women get better, and it's hard to be better, you know, especially if the longer you're suffering, too, which is what's sad. So many women have suffered for so long. So the crippling aspects of sexual pain are more than just physical. They're also emotional and psychological. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but this subject is important. So please join us next time for the second part of this show, when we delve deeper into Jessica's story and find out how men react to sexual pain in women. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Christo, especially for upcoming shows, please email him at achesandgains at gmail.com. That's achesandgains at gmail.com. Here we have a question from Mary Jane in Seattle, Washington. What's considered an injury to the sciatic nerve? I had laser spine surgery last January to relieve the pain from a disc bulge at L5-S1 and still have numbness and tingling in my left foot and lower leg. Will the numbness ever go away? An MRI last week confirmed another central disc protrusion at L5-S1 that is abutting the S1 nerve and causing extreme pain. Are there other options other than surgery that will relieve this pain? I'm 64. Mary Jane, the medical term sciatica is somewhat of a misnomer because it usually indicates irritation and inflammation of the nerve roots that come together to form the sciatic nerve, the largest nerve of the body, rather than the nerve itself. Occasionally, people can develop true sciatica, which often occurs when the nerve itself becomes irritated by the piriformis muscle, which connects the lower spine to the hip located in the buttock. The source of the injury can be mechanical, that is, a disc in your back herniates causing nerve compression, or chemical, that is, inflammatory molecules called cytokines leak out of degenerated discs to inflame nerve roots. Numbness, like pain, indicates nerve damage, but it's often more difficult to treat. Each nerve contains many fibers, which serve different roles. Generally, injury to the smaller nerve fibers results in pain, while an insult to the larger fibers that transmit sensation can cause numbness. Because pain often results from injured pain fibers that fire inappropriately, it may be easier to treat the numbness. If you've had numbness for 10 months, some of it may resolve, but there's a strong chance you'll never regain full sensation. Because it involves the same mechanisms as pain, treatments for numbness are very similar and include anticonvulsant drugs like pregabalin or gabapentin and epidural steroid injections. The evidence for percutaneous or non-invasive disc decompression, including laser surgery, is unfortunately still anecdotal and not based on high-level evidence. Among these treatments, the strongest evidence is for a drug called chymoprotein, Papain that's available throughout Europe and other continents, but is no longer being used here. The views and opinions expressed in this radio program are solely the views of Dr. Paul Christo 
and do not necessarily express the views of this radio station and Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, nor an endorsement by any or all of them of any of its contents. This show provides medical information, not advice. Please consult your personal physician before engaging in any course of treatment or use of any of the techniques or products discussed on this show. Discussion of particular uses of products on this show have not been approved by any of the manufacturers of such products. Aches and Gains is also available live online. Follow us on Twitter at DRPaulCristo and like us on Facebook, Aches and Gains. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulcristomd.com. That's paulcristomd.com. Aches and Gains is produced by Eric Vohr and Dr. Paul Christo. Ty Ford is the audio engineer, and Elsa Langford is the technical consultant and engineer. Thanks for listening. This is Aches and Gains with Dr. Paul Christo.